From Irmo to Istanbul, from Taipei to Tunisia, we tell the stories of the people who make the world of international disputes turn. We give glimpses into their lives and give insights from their experience. These accounts come from every sector and every industry from around the globe. Simply put, and without further ado, I am Chris Campbell, and you're listening to Tales of the Tribunal, where practice meets personality. Hello, and welcome back to Tales of the Tribunal with Chris Campbell. I'm your host, Chris Campbell, here to tell you another tale, another story from around the wide, wide world of international law, business, and dispute resolution. Listeners, listen, I know what you're thinking. Chris, the last time we heard from you, it was like summer. It was July. There was a summer special and everything. And yet, now it is almost November, squarely in the fall, and we are just now coming back to season five of the show. Well, listeners, that's for a few reasons. That's because we were trying to make sure that we were in a good spot, had some good interviews lined up for you, and rest assured, we do. And we are sitting here in Hong Kong at the end of Hong Kong Arbitration Week. We just come back from Pub Night. You will know a great tradition here, part of the event. Now, who won the pub? quiz tournament does not quite matter but was a good time nonetheless there were a lot of great speakers and a multitude of tasks and topics throughout the week everything from tactics and international arbitration to the oft talked about ai nia artificial intelligence and how it's being used and deployed and what that might look like and all other sorts of topics in between so if you've not made it out to hong kong arbitration week previously you should absolutely add that to your events calendar one day and hopefully we'll have some sound bites coming for you here over the next week from the great times that were had here at the week so um, without further ado let's talk about this week's guest and that is a very special guest um, a callback to our season one series of episodes that we focused on and partnered with Arbitral Women. And I'm speaking, of course, of the new president of Arbitral Women, Miss Louise Woods. And we had a great conversation to take a look at things like um, what it has been like so far in her new tenure as the president of Arbitral Women, what the organization is working on, um, how the definition of diversity has changed in recent years, and how the field can continue to address important topics such as diversity as we go forward. So um, I think you'll enjoy the conversation. It is a fun one, and it is is one that um, I've been looking forward to bringing to you for a little bit of time, and it'll actually hold themes across the weeks, so that'll give you a good little teaser to come back next week. So, without further ado, my conversation with Miss Louise Woods, and we'll see you on the other side of the show. Hello and welcome back to Tales of the Tribunal with Chris Campbell. I'm your host, Chris Campbell, here to tell you another tale story from around the wide, wide world of international law, business, and dispute resolution. Listeners, how can it be that we are already in the back half of season five, careening towards the end of the season, but still chock full of great episodes and great interviews to bring you throughout the rest of the season? And today's episode is no different, as you will have just heard moments ago in the introducing and opening notes. We have a very special guest with us today, Miss Louise Woods. Louise, welcome to the show. Hi, Chris. Thanks. It's great to be here. Thank you for being here with us, Louise. And so, um, as I just mentioned a few moments ago, we did an introduction uh, for you um, at the top of the show before we got into this discussion. But, you know, I think it's always best to hear from folks directly themselves. So I'm going to ask you that question that we ask all of our guests on the show. Who are you? Where are you from? What do the people need to know? <laughs> Great question. Um, so I'm Louise Woods. I'm an international disputes partner in London at Vincent and Elkins. Um, I've been with VE for about 10 years. Before that, um, I was at Denton's and before that at Salem's. Um, I started out my career in finance. So I was a finance lawyer before I became a disputes lawyer, little known fact. Um, I'm also a mother of two. Um, and I, uh, <laughs> I know full well the struggle and the juggle that is being a parent and um, a, a full-time arbitration practitioner with all the travel and everything these days. Um, you can probably tell from my accent, I'm not English. I'm, uh, sort of, I grew up all over the place. So I'm based in London now, but I um, spent most of my childhood outside of the UK, in the US and in France. Uh, mainly going to international schools, so I speak fluent French, um, 
And yeah, I just have a passion for languages and for traveling and for different cultures. And that's probably what led me into arbitration specifically. Sure. Very cool. Well, yes, lots of threads to pick up there um, or pull on there. So um, you said you grew up a little bit all over. Um, let's talk about that. How did you get into um, or, well, you know, was it a young Louise Woods that knew she wanted to be a lawyer or what, what brought you into that realm of thinking? Um, yeah, I, I think probably from about the age of 13 or 14, I knew I wanted to be a lawyer. Although at that point I was reading John Grisham novels. And so <laughs> I wanted to be that kind of lawyer. Um, I'd never heard of arbitration at that point, obviously. Um, but yeah, it was always for me, but I didn't take the plunge and study law straight away. I, um, I did an English degree, so I studied English literature because I just loved reading. And that was my best subject um, at school. And um, I worked in a few pubs and bars for a year. And my dad tapped me on the shoulder and said, hey, <laughs> you have a good degree in English literature from a great university. What are you doing with your life? And I thought, well, it's probably time to dust off the uh, the books and go back to, to university. And so I did a law conversion at that point. That is really cool. Um, I, I won't go into the whole stories now, but that, that resonates with me because I actually, um, before I became a lawyer and in early days of my legal career, I used to run a beer tourism company. So um, I can, <laughs> you know, we're, we're having a little bit of a bond in here that I definitely get it. <laughs> I think it just makes you um, a better all-around colleague and, and, and lawyer, really, the fact that you've done different stuff and you've, you've had different experiences. I always encourage our, um, our trainees and our vacation scheme students who are saying, oh, hey, I'm, I'm wondering what to do with my, my year between law school and starting with the firm. What should I do? And I'm always like, just go and do something completely different. Go and work in a bar. Go travel. Do whatever it is you want to do. Don't worry about doing something that's relevant to the practice of law because it all is ultimately relevant. Well, that's absolutely true. I mean, I think, you know, the, the beer company was, was fun and I got to learn some of the nitty gritty stuff of business. But before that, I worked in amusement parks, like through high school and through much of college. And you want to talk about the ability to mediate conflict resolution, <laughs> you know, a hot summer day in an amusement park. You know, you need to have all of those things. <laughs> yeah, well, that's that's exactly right. Uh, you know, um, a day behind the bar in a pub in, in London when the football's on and everyone's been drinking since midday, similar kind of situation. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Okay, and so you said around 13 or 14, you, you thought you got the inspiration about law. Um, so tell us a little bit, you know, uh, if you didn't know about arbitration back then, I mean, what, what were the breadcrumbs that led you into that field? How did you come across that? Really, it was the practice of it. So um, I was lucky enough to join a firm where I trained that had a thriving arbitration practice. And I did my fourth seat in the disputes team. Um, I did mostly litigation during that time. But then, um, as I think I said a few moments ago, I, I qualified as a finance lawyer. So I was never going into litigation or arbitration. But Lehman Brothers then collapsed. And the firm I was with was like, oh, hey, <laughs> we don't have a whole heap of finance work. But the litigation team is just, you know, they're rushed off their feet. Would you? Would you be seconded to them for a little while? So I joined them immediately on qualification and I mostly did litigation for a couple of years. But then um, one of the partners I was working with, uh, well-known um, arbitration lawyer, George Byrne, whom I'm sure you've come across, he was uh, he was running a number of arbitrations at the time and he got me involved. And that was my first experience. And I went to Warsaw to take witness statements. And um, my, my love of it really came from there. Oh, that's really interesting. And um, and we'll dive into that a little bit further in just a few moments. So one more thing that uh, I want to mention before we uh, kind of move on from that topic is you said, um, you know, as a result of having uh, lived in a few different places, uh, you also have some different languages under your belt. Which languages do you speak? So I'm bilingual in French. Um, I spent yeah. eight years there when I was a child. Um, and then I studied German and Spanish to quite high levels. But um the German I have used less over over time, and so it's kind of rusted and gone. But um, my Spanish is pretty good. Well, that is pretty good. I mean, you that's what three, four languages, no? I mean, that's polyglot almost, or got to be in that realm-ish. Well, I used to think so, but these days you meet young young practitioners who speak like seven languages fluently, and it's just amazing. Yeah, no, that's true. My partner speaks four or five her, um, herself, so I absolutely get it. <laughs> Um, well, very cool. Um, so I guess 
One of the things that uh, that comes to mind, and um, and we, we talked about in the opening notes, um, that are just bringing up here, is that I say recent, recent, uh, perhaps within the relevant scheme of things. Um, you've taken on this role as the president of Arbitral Women. First, congratulations. Um, Thank you. What has that been like? You know, I know that Arbitral Women is a renowned organization, well known across the globe, huge membership, huge engagement. Um, Taking on such a big mantle, what what has that been like? Um, and I guess also follow up questions there. But maybe that's a place to start. Sure. I mean, I've been involved with Ar arbitral women for um, over a decade now. I remember when I was quite a junior lawyer, um, and I just right from the get go, I loved the organization, the friendships that I forged as part of my involvement, what it does for your um, for your profile and for your career and just the mentorship that you gain from the other members of Arbitral Women. Absolutely amazing. Um, and so I, I became involved, more and more involved, about eight years ago. I volunteered to help the board with some of their projects and I got to know some of the board members very well as a result. And then um, eventually I stood for election when they had board elections um, uh, in approximately, I think it's around 2016. Um, and so the, sort of my progress up to president has just happened over time. Um, so I, I was uh, secretary, then I was VP, and now I'm the president. And it's been an absolute honor, really, to, to assume that role um, and to be at the helm of the organization. It has grown so much from what it was 10 years ago. And um, really, we have Nilez, um, Philippe, and Louise Barrington to thank for its genesis um, 30 years ago. But um, Dana McGrath, who was the president last term, who I took over from, did such an amazing job of modernizing the organization um, and bringing its governance practices into uh, into the future, essentially. And um, yeah, it, I mean, I just love it. I, I love giving back to the organization because I feel like it's done so much for me in my career. Well, well, yes, absolutely. And um, several of the names that you just mentioned there uh, between Dana and Merez are friends of the show. They've been on the show um, in years past. And, uh, and in fact, um, I think, uh, well, for sure Dana, but I think Merez might have been in season one too. But that was a, a season that we did in collaboration with Arbiter Women. So that was, um, that was so much fun to do. Um, you know, I wonder, uh, you know, before, you know, sort of jumping from that topic, during your tenure, is there anything you know that you can share about what you hope to achieve during this time frame, or or things that uh, folks should be keeping an eye on coming from Arbitral Women? Sure. I mean, one of the things that we've really been focused on um, at, at the moment is giving back not just to our members but to the wider arbitration community. And so we have a number of projects um, around the Viz East, the Viz Moot, and other educational programs where. Um, we use arbitral women funds to sponsor diverse teams to participate in those moots and in particular focusing on regions where um, the, the team members wouldn't necessarily be able to get themselves to Vienna, to Hong Kong, uh, don't necessarily have the funds to participate and just facilitating that and, and really helping to nurture and grow the next generation of arbitration practitioners with a focus on, on regions that aren't the sort of arbitration hubs that you always think about. Um, so that that's one of them. I think the other thing we've been doing is celebrating, which is great. Um, Arbitral Women turned 30 this year, um, and we've really been sort of, you know, enjoying celebrating that. We had a great event here in London in May. We have more planned in Paris, which uh, will probably take place in November. Um, and just celebrating those that have given so much to the organization um, and brought it to where it is today. Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and for those listening that may um, somehow be unfamiliar with what all the things that Arbitral Women does, um, go check them out. I mean, whether you're looking to work with uh, women as counsel or as arbitrators or if you're a woman yourself and you're interested in being a member of the organization uh, that, you know, when I talk to young students or, or folks that are in the field that aren't involved, that's one of the first things I say is, are you involved with Arbitral Women? Um, well, thank you. Thank you for being an advocate for Arbitral Women. I mean, that's fantastic. And um, I, I think one of the main things that I tell sort of the younger practitioners and students entering the profession is um, that they should check out our mentorship scheme. So if you join as an Arbitral Women member, you get access to the mentorship scheme. And it is truly amazing. I mean, you get paired with some of the most senior female practitioners in arbitration and you have one on one mentorship sessions. I think that that in itself is invaluable. 
Um, and then also we have a parental mentorship group. So that's something that um, uh, I I created a couple of years ago, I, I think as I came back from my first maternity leave and just realized, wow, this is, you know, once you cross that um, divide into parenthood, um, you realize just how difficult it is to juggle. And, and we felt there was a need for uh, a space within Arbitral Women where we could discuss issues that are specific to parenting. Um, so that's another really popular program that we run. Um, but there's so much more, just events generally. We shout out our members on LinkedIn, um, on other social media platforms. Um, yeah, it's truly amazing. And it's all thanks to the, the time and the dedication of our volunteer board members. Well, absolutely. Um, and and one, one thing that comes to mind that is related, but um, I guess not per se, arbitral women, is I guess the broader conversation that goes on about what what exactly we're talking about or what we mean when we say diversity. Um, because I think as that conversation has continued to evolve and mature, we're realizing that diversity means different things in different parts of the world and in different contexts. And that can mean a lot of different things to different people. So maybe the easiest question or to start with, the first question to start with is, um, when you think about diversity and understanding you're not necessarily speaking on behalf of arbitrary women, but just in your context, when you hear diversity, what comes to mind for you? Well, I mean, that's a really good question because I think everybody talks about diversity and inclusion these days. And, and I'm not sure how many people pause and actually think about what that means. Um, and I think if you go, if you go to any dictionary, you know, you'll see that diversity is, is essentially defined as the practice of, of including and involving people from different social and ethnic backgrounds, different genders, sexual orientations, et cetera, in whatever it is that you're, you're doing or you're talking about. But I think for me personally, I mean, obviously it is that, but it's about in arbitration, um, bringing, bringing value for clients. Because, I mean, you know, we've all read uh, many, many empirical studies that say that diversity of thought produces better results, right? So it's, it's going to be in your client's interest, in your business's interest to have a diverse team working on something. But I think from a very personal um, perspective, for me, it's also about making sure that um, people can look up and see physical manifestations of themselves achieving what they dream of achieving. So what I mean by that is being able to look up and say, okay, you know, say I'm a woman, I really want to be a partner at a firm in, in the city. You know, are there any women above me that I can look to and I can see have achieved that? Because I think that's really significant to be able to, to, to see a physical manifestation of that dream. And I didn't have that when I was a junior practitioner. There were no, I never worked for any senior female partners in arbitration. Um, and obviously there, there were some out there, the trailblazers, trailblazers of arbitration, I'd say. Um, but for me personally, um, it, that wasn't the case. And so I, I feel a great sort of, um, I guess, weight of responsibility, but I take pride in it, in, in making sure that I model for the junior lawyers coming up, the, the women in arbitration, that you, know, you, can, you can achieve your dream, and you can do it whilst having a family. It's not incompatible. Um, and so for others, I think it, it's it's the same, you know. Um, for our black lawyers, they need to see that black lawyers can also succeed, whether that's as counsel, as partner within the firm, and know that that's possible. Yeah, I mean, I think all of that um, certainly resonates with me and certainly would resonate, I think, with a lot of our listeners. Um, and I underscore for folks that maybe don't understand or get that point. I think it's the value of exactly what you've said, of representation, of um, you can model yourself, you can model your career, your trajectory, all of those types of things. When you see someone that looks like you or share some overlap with your background to imagine something that maybe hasn't been done by people from your community, from your, um, from your background itself. I mean, I think those are all critically important um, to sort of see those, bring those things into reality and not just fantasy. Exactly. Uh -huh. And I think it's just it's also just business sense. I mean, increasingly, um, you know, these days clients are diverse and so they want to see diverse that diversity mirrored in their external counsel. And so, you know, why why wouldn't we? It, it's in everyone's interest to, to but really focus on on increasing diversity within law firms. And we have a lot to do. 
Well, absolutely. And I think um, you, you may have seen this with the clients that you work with. Um, and it's, I guess, a trend that started more more with more aggression over the last five to seven years. But that, that level of accountability um, from a client perspective, and um, I know you definitely see that to some extent from my position as an in-house, is uh, what are the metrics? You know, what, get me what gets measured gets done. Um, okay, you say that you have a diverse offering in terms of um, the legal team that you're putting forward. Okay, well, are those diverse candidates or diverse people actually doing the work? Are they getting credit for um, having brought the business in? You know, it's not enough to just to say, oh, yeah, we have a person of color. We have a woman on the team. You know, really having to go there to show oh, that person is actually a valued member and actually adding value to the, um, to the work. A hundred percent. And I think what's really interesting, and just picking up on what you said about um, clients or, or in-house counsel being more vocal in, in sort of questioning and challenging um, their their external counsel on these things and not just accepting, oh, well, there's someone, there's a diverse person on the team, so we can tick that box. Um, it, it I've seen recently more and more clients will look at, for example, shortlists for um, tribunals, you know, arbitrator candidates. And, you know, no list of mine will will be exclusively white men. But, you know, there are still lists that I see sometimes that are exclusively white men. And um, I, I've seen clients question that and say, well, hang on a minute. Where, you know, where is the woman in this list? Why do we not have a diverse candidate? And I think I mean, it's great. I love it when clients do that because then I don't have to. And I know that, you know, the more people are doing that, um, the more normal it will become and, and the more embarrassed, frankly, people will be to put forward exclusively white male shortlist. Well, that's right. And look, um, and, and I'll make this point here only because it's been the subject of the conversations I've had mostly with some men who over the past year, two years, especially. That isn't to say that we don't want to appoint men or white men or anything of the sort. It's more about trying to make an offering that is actually representative of the client's work, of the work that's being done and the offerings that are out there. And it's not just exclusively male. It's not exclusively white. Absolutely. And of course, you know, I, I say the term white men because we've all heard the pale male and stale <laughs> description of the arbitration or arbitration tribunals in the past. But it's... um. That ignores the fact that, you know, you can have diversity within a pool of white men. You might have a, a tribunal member who's Absolutely. gay, for example, and, you know, that wouldn't be apparent necessarily. Um, but it's 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 about increasing diversity. And as you say, you know, having a more diverse pool to start with when you're looking at council selection, arbitrator selection, expert selection, increases the likelihood that you will ultimately end up with a tribunal or a team that represents the wider community. Um, and, and as I said at the beginning, I think, you know, th there's no denying that that's in everybody's best interest. Well, absolutely. Um, and I think, you know, while I'm not particularly trying to walk on eggshells I'm around having these conversations, I do sort of um, it does make me take pause when I hear some men, some white men make the position of like, oh, well, it sounds like you're just trying to exclude white men. And I, I want to make it very clear that when I talk about diversity and the values that I align with, that's certainly not the, the goal nor the intention. And I think that's why it's important for us to be thoughtful about the way we frame these arguments so that that perception isn't being created, whether rightly or wrongly. I agree. I think that's absolutely right. Um, and and I think um, I think for a long time, you know, uh, that has not been a focus. And increasingly, I think people are being more thoughtful about how they they discuss these things. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Um, and, you know, one just one more question, one more point here to raise uh, before uh, kind of shifting from the diversity point in particular. Um, are, is there anything that comes to mind, things that you wish in the diversity space specifically um, that you think that the industry could be doing to sort of move the needle forward on diversity? Um, you know, I think we've seen it, it's at least being talked about and thought of and it's it's in front and center. Anything else that you think that we as a field or an industry could be doing? Yeah, I mean, that's a really great question because, you know, I'm involved in the firm's diversity efforts here and through Arbitral Women, I'm thinking about it all the time. And um, it, it's really hard to pinpoint exactly what is going to produce, you know, the, the best results as quickly as possible. But I think really it's it comes down to positive action and the idea that you can sort of look at the intake of law students or of graduates coming into law firms and say, oh, hey, you know, they're 
they're majority female now or they're they're way more diverse than they were 10 years ago so we can sit back and wait and in 10 years we'll have a diverse partnership or you know diverse uh, gcs i don't think that works i think we have to still be taking positive steps and what those are um you know it's going to depend i think on the situation and the individuals but i am a, a very firm believer in in mentorship um and and the value that mentorship has um in ensuring that people feel included and ensuring that conversations are happening so that you if people are not feeling included or empowered or supported you identify those problems through conversation and you take steps to address them um so mentorship and i also think as you said earlier, measuring things helps you hold yourself to account. So I think um, law firms in particular need to be better at measuring their statistics and at holding themselves to account and ensuring that if they have targets and they're not meeting them, they then go back and look at why and try and dissect that. Um, and, and I think really we still, we're still unfortunately in a place where we need to be taking those positive steps. We cannot be complacent. Agreed. I think, um, yes, uh, I'll stay still steer clear of the politics and the things going on in the U.S., but I will say the moments of complacency are the greatest opportunities for uh, sort of relapse. Um, and I'll just gesture broadly at some of the legal decisions that have been going on there, and I don't want to turn it into a, a criticism of the, of the Supreme Court too much, but we'll go there. Um, <laughs> let, let's say, uh, let, let's keep up the idea of things that, uh, you know, maybe the, the field could be doing a little bit better. Let's say you had um, a magic wand and you could wave it and change anything about the practice of international dispute resolution, maybe keeping about arbitration specifically. Um, what would you change? And, and maybe give us some insights into why. Sure. Um, another great question. I think I mean, there's two things that spring to mind for me about the practice of arbitration that I, I find frustrating sometimes. and um, I, I imagine others will as well. And the first is this insistence on traveling to places, far-flung places for half-day hearings, one-day hearings. And I think, you know, with with the pandemic over the last few years, we saw obviously a necessary um, mandatory decrease in the amount of travel. But that's certainly, in, I, I, my experience has picked back up again. And I think that is another barrier um in terms of diversity um the, the need to travel for a three-hour procedural he hearing i mean it's just it makes no sense and there's no reason why those things can't be done remotely and allowing those to proceed remotely will i think help the diversity conversation as well because it allows people to participate who could not necessarily travel so for example if we have a remote hearing um over zoom I will encourage the juniors who have the time to come and sit in the room and be with us. If we were traveling to Geneva, for example, for that, you know, that would require mobilizing that trainee or, or paralegal to Geneva. Not going to happen unless they're essential for the case. Um, and so I think the, the sort of focus on, on flying around the world, not great. And we need to change that. And I think for obviously for environmental reasons as well. I mean, those are obvious. Um, but, you know, for cost reasons, clients, clients are always sort of complaining about bills, as you well know. <laughs> never. No, that never happens. <laughs> um, no, but right, rightly so on things like that. I think there's just no reason why we can't all do these things on Zoom. Now, of course, if you're talking about evidentiary hearings where you're hearing from witnesses and things like that, a hundred percent you want to be in the room with the witnesses you want you want the tribunal to be in the room with the witnesses um but yeah so i think that the the use of virtual hearings for, for procedural matters you know that needs to be here to stay and i i've seen a a tendency to move back towards traveling and um i i just don't think it's it's necessary or helpful i i guess the other thing i'd say that i know many many others will say is just the 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 tendency in arbitration to sort of let people keep writing, keep speaking, keep going back over the same issues. Um, and, you know, you can have a relatively straightforward case that ends up, you know, with 
hundreds of pages of spilt it spilt ink um, because you know people don't have time to write a shorter brief essentially <laughs> because it's easier to write a long one than it is a short concise one that touches on all the points and so I think one of the things that I have in mind when I sit as arbitrator is trying to limit the amount of of um, of time that parties can spend you know going back over old ground if, if we briefed on it before do we really need to go there again if we do need to go there again and i you know accept in some cases we will page limits what's wrong with page limits what's wrong with directing uh parties to address certain specific questions and no more and i think you know again it's it's in it's in clients interest it's um it's going to keep costs down because we're not going to be spending so much time reviewing reams and reams of paper. I mean, we have tribunals sometimes who are expected to read, you know, 200 page skeleton arguments three days before a hearing starts. Um, who wants to do that? And, and how is that helpful to anyone? Yeah, literally no one. No one wants to do that. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, I, I think that's all well said. Um, I think that there is this sort of conflation between zealous advocacy and saying a lot of stuff <laughs> and, and and saying a lot of stuff isn't necessarily zealous advocacy at all it's not even effective it just can be what i would it's like a legal lullaby um just putting the the, the listeners to, to sleep at some point not really ever engaging with what you're saying at, any, at some point yeah and you can you can lose your your best points you know in in, in the weeds if um, if every single point is being taken. So some, some of the best um, legal writing I've seen, some of the best briefs I've read are, are the shorter and the concise, the more concise ones. Um, so I think that's one of the things I would definitely change because overall it would improve cost, it would, it would be more efficient for everyone. Um, and, and, and let's face it, less frustrating. Well, I think that's, I think that's all right. And I think uh, I wanna pick on one thing that you said earlier in your answer too, is that I think it's a really good thing when law firms will um, include uh, more junior members that are just trying to get experience on these virtual hearings and these calls. Um, you know, the thing, the only thing that I would caution is that, especially from an in-house perspective, is that then being really careful to underscore who is actually there as necessary, and that's why that person is billing. Versus, like, yes, do you have the main partner, and the main managing associate there? But if you want to bring your other five associates too, sure, but don't bill me for the other five associates. <laughs> Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, that's, that's, yeah, I mean, that's what I meant is if you were, um, if you were required to mobilize a team of five juniors to come and observe in Geneva, you would either have to swallow that cost yourself, or you'd have to have an uncomfortable conversation with a client about, you know, wh why they should fund training of five associates. No way. Um, I, that's absolutely right. You wouldn't bill for that time at all. It's an investment in those people's future careers. It's an investment for the firm and their training. Um, and, and it's just great experience for them because it helps to, I think very often the juniors in arbitration and litigation can get lost in the, the paperwork, right? In the doc review, in the red phone schedules, in the bundles. And what you really want them to see is the hearing because, you know, you see a hearing, you understand what all that work that you they have spent the last three months doing was for what what it was about and why it's so important and let's face it the hearing is where the magic happens so um but yeah you're absolutely right you wouldn't you would never charge a client for for that time whether it was remote or uh in person yeah and i think that that one of those last points you made is especially pertinent when we consider um, how much of the more routine aspects or activities might end up getting sort of um, rolled into the work and capacity that AI and machines can do, um, you know, that, okay, so if those things are going to be offloaded to those um, tools, you need to make sure that the, the trainees and the more junior members are actually still learning how to do the job. Otherwise, we're going to find ourselves with a shortfall of talent in a few years. That's a really good point. Um, and I think, yeah, I think that's another, that brings me back. It makes me think about the whole COVID sort of remote working issue because one of the conversations that, you know, we've been having over the past year, year and a half is, um, you know, are we all coming into the office enough so that the juniors who've never been in the office because they joined during COVID and have known nothing other than remote working actually get the 
the um, the kind of learning by osmosis that you get from being in the office with people, from sharing an office, from hearing them pick up the phone and talk to the other side, from just going into meetings. Um, and, you know, that's a real concern as well, that there, there may be a gap in five, ten years time where we have um, practitioners who've, who've never really had the same exposure that you and I and other ancient dinosaurs <laughs> have had. <laughs> No, I, I think that that's well said. Um, and, you know, and I, I am a believer in hybrid work. Um, you know, I think that there's not a need necessarily to be in the office every single day, but I do think that there does need to be some in order to establish a culture, working habits, um, ideologies that that time is necessary. And then maybe you can be a little bit more remote. But for folks that have never done any other way, um, no, you need some of that that base time. Um, to, to Absolutely, that. and that and that involves asking them to come in to the office, but also making sure that the senior lawyers come in to train them and to be there with them. Otherwise, it doesn't work. Um, yes, so, well, yeah. look, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you this. This week as we're recording, um, it's been um, like 40 degrees, which is like in the 100, 110 degrees Fahrenheit um, in northern Italy. Uh, and the office has great air conditioning. So that's a great incentive for people to come in. <laughs> Yeah, there was um there was August 2019. We had a crazy week right at the end of August when I was about eight eight and three quarter months pregnant with my son, and it was like 38 degrees in London, and of course there's no air conditioning anywhere, including in my house. Um, and I was coming into the office every day, and people were like, "What are you doing? You're, you know, you're practically nine months pregnant. It's boiling hot. Why aren't you staying at home?" And I was like, "Because." There's air conditioning in the office, people. <laughs> mm -hmm. Absolutely. Look, the value of that AC. Um, you know, one of the things that uh, we were just talking about a few moments ago is uh, is the impact of AI and machines. Um, you know, without rehashing uh, what I'm sure all the think pieces that are well, now well-tread road over this past year as they become more prevalent, um, I wonder what impacts, if any, do you see um, there being on the practice of law, maybe dispute resolution or maybe just um, as we go forward from machines, is there anything in particular that comes to mind for you? Um, I mean, I think undoubtedly, obviously the use of AI is going to be on the increase and it's being talked about more. So I think people are starting to uh, realize that actually a lot of the tools that they're already using use a form of AI in some respects. So even like a Google search or you know a doc review platform, um, anything like that is going to use some form of AI. And I think people are starting to think more in those terms. I think um, some of us were, were just kind of using those and not really stopping to think about, okay, what does that actually involve? Um, and, and I think that is going to become more and more the norm, those types of tools being readily used and accepted, especially when you're talking about cases where you have huge volumes of factual evidence that it's impractical for um, you and I and other lawyers to spend hours and hours and hours reading every single document because, you know, that's just not not a good use of anyone's time. And so I think we're going to see more of the type of AI that reviews that and, and, for example, produces, you know, detailed chronologies without someone having to take that step manually themselves. Um, and certainly I've seen it. I mean, it's it's much more readily used in the context of meetings. So arbitral within board meetings, for example, we've been exploring using technology to take the minutes for us. Um, so it sort of creates a transcript and then produces a minute from the transcript. And actually, it's surprisingly accurate um, and, and useful. And I was somewhat skeptical as to how this AI was going to produce a minute that really made any sense. Um, but where I think there's going to be some resistance, but we may see change in the future is where you kind of go beyond the simple uh, search tools and the review of factual information and the synthesis of that factual detail crossing over into things that might be perceived to encroach on the sort of tribunals decision making, for example, tools that could be said to be um, taking too much away from the arbitrator's actual uh, thought process. And, and you know how they apply those facts to the law and 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 reach a decision. And I think that's that's where this space is going to get really really interesting. Um, and I think we're going to have to be really really careful because you know we we select our tribunals because we want them to make the decision. And we take a you know we spend a lot of time we invest a lot of time 
with our clients in choosing the right tribunal members. Um, and so then the idea that you you um, you might employ some form of AI to sort of help too much in that process um, is a worrying one. But having said that, I'm very um, I'm very aware that I'm kind of older, <laughs> and and you know I may be here experience. So, yeah, that's better. Um, I am a technological luddite, and <laughs> and no, I'm joking. Um, but I, I'm just conscious that I think you know anytime there is change that frightens people and people who are not at the forefront of that change will be quick to sort of point out the potential pitfalls and i think we need to be doing that and certainly when it comes to arbitral decision making we need to be very very careful but i also think that we need to uh give due consideration to, to ai and to how it might be able to help us and not dismiss it out of hand because we're experienced <laughs> that's right well look I to that point, I still don't have a TikTok. I don't know that I ever will. <laughs> no, neither do I. I mean, I can barely keep up with Instagram. So, <laughs> although exactly, I'm yeah. conscious, conscious that my daughter, when she eventually uh, is a teenager, no doubt I'll have to get into all of these things to monitor what she's doing. So, <laughs> yeah, the editors of the show are, are are Gen Z folk, and they're constantly saying, "Oh, why don't we have a, a TikTok? We could, you know, do little clips." And that's, yeah, if you guys can figure that out, yeah, sure. <laughs> What what about threads? Has, has anyone Say, started correct? badgering? Has anyone started badgering you about threads yet? Not not yet, but I, I'm sure it's coming because I mean I, I had a Twitter account at some point, but I haven't used it in years, and um, maybe now is as good a time as any to maybe give that format a a, a try. We'll see. We'll see. Um, you know, and keeping right along with uh, just sort of this this idea of you know how our industry how our field is going to change. Um, you know, I guess another question that comes to mind is not just technology related, but maybe just with the practice in general. Any predictions, you know, if you had a crystal ball, if you had to gaze in the future and see changes you think will come to the field in the next five to 10 years, anything that comes to mind for you? Yeah, I mean, I suppose picking up on what we were just talking about, increased use of AI, I think, um, and remote technologies, hopefully, um, that's here to stay for, for all the reasons that we were talking about before. Um, but I think in terms of the substantive practice, of arbitration, one of the things that I've kind of seen on the increase is a is a change in the way we handle expert evidence. Hmm. Um, and I think for a long time, my experience has been that tribunals, unlike the English courts, for example, who who have to give you permission to adduce expert evidence in a particular discipline, although notionally that concept exists in arbitration as well. And, and you'll have tribunals that are, are more um, more forthcoming in managing the expert process. I think it's fair to say that parties are generally uh, able to sort of shape the expert piece how they want it. And so I'm sure you're familiar with the, the ships passing in the night um, concept. But, you know, unfortunately, you see that all too often and you have the parties sort of crafting the expert evidence in a way that suits their case and it's not until you get sort of two-thirds of the way down the line that you sit down and it's like well these two experts don't really come at this from the same angle they're not talking about the same stuff and so now we need a direction from the tribunal to deal with this or we're going to have an expert meeting but it's actually not going to be that productive because you know, one expert's going to say, well, I wasn't instructed to address this. And the other expert's going to say, but that's, you know, that's a critical cornerstone of the case. How can you not have been? And I mean, you're laughing, so you've seen it all before. And I think one of the things, I mean, that that's one of the areas where I think there is room for improvement and we can actually learn from what some court systems around the world do in, in taking a, certainly in the UK, and taking a more proactive approach to the management of expert evidence. And so I've seen recently tribunals being uh, more forthcoming and saying, no, you know, we need a list of expert issues up front before anybody puts pen to paper on any expert reports. We want to know what are the agreed issues that will be put to the experts. Now, it's not always going to be possible to do that right up front before anyone's pleaded the case. Um, but you should certainly be able to do that after a statement of claim, statement of defense. Um, you know, it, it's 
it's not going to suit every case, but it's definitely a conversation that could be had. And I've seen more and more tribunals kind of um, prompting or instigating that conversation. Um, and, and again, not just around how the expert issues are framed and how the reports are produced, um, but around um, joint expert reports. I'm seeing an increase in, in tribunals ordering joint expert reports. Um, I'm seeing an increase in sort of tribunal intervention at hearings in questioning experts. So in my experience, gone are the days where expert examination was just opposing counsel cross-examining. And it's much more likely to involve the tribunal asking questions. Um, or in some cases, I've seen a form of hot tubbing where uh, the, the two experts basically sit side by side through cross-examination as well. So not just went questioning by the tribunal, but through cross-examination and, and both experts can sort of respond to questions. Um, so I think for me that that's going to be a, an interesting kind of one to watch, I guess, over the coming years. Yeah, and I think, you know, what I hear from some of the things that you've just said is really um, kind of the through line of this entire conversation is there's no need to sort of get to bury the lead, so to speak, in working through these cases in terms of saying all this other stuff, making all these arguments that aren't really the heart of the case. But instead, what is what is this case really about? What are the parties really disagreeing over? And if you can resolve some of those issues early on, then hopefully that allows for a clear path to resolution regardless of who's going to win that case one way or another. Exactly. Now, of course, you you know, how do you end up with the ships passing in the night? Well, sometimes it's not in uh, one party's interest to have the expert issues framed in a particular way. And so, you know, you have to be bear in mind the, the, the particular case and what your client, you know, is going to want and what's in their best interest. But generally speaking, it has to be right that it is ultimately nine times out of 10 going to be in the party's best interest to have an efficient and effective dispute resolution procedure. Um, and so I think, you know, we're, we're going to see more and more of that. I'm definitely, um, definitely been seeing more interventionist tribunals when it comes to expert evidence. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, well, look, let's, uh, let, let us actually do a hard pivot. Let's do a jump into a completely different topic. Um, something a little bit more zoomed out, um, you know, You're so, scaring me. <laughs> uh, well, look, we've talked about, you know, the fact that we, you know, experience, you know, uh, we're, we're not going to, we're going to reject this ages and sort of, uh, nomenclature of older we're experienced. Um, you've had a lot of, I'm sure influences or, or guiding forces throughout your career, maybe even some role models. Can you give us some thoughts or some, some comments on what some of those forces or role models might have looked like? Sure. I mean, I, as I said earlier, I think um, I, I never had a senior female boss, essentially, to look up to. Um, and so for me, my role, role models have been uh, men that I've worked with over the years. And one partner in particular, I mentioned him earlier, George Byrne. Uh, he was a fantastic mentor and, and supporter of mine. Um, I, I was a trainee in his team. And, and when he moved to Vincent and Elkins, I moved with him. And we've remained great friends until this day. He was instrumental in giving me opportunities to do advocacy early on. Um, and I think, you know, not not many people are, um, are I suppose, brave enough to, to do that. You know, it, it, it takes a brave partner to say, my junior associate's going to take this with me. Um, and, and he was willing to do that for me. And um, so he undoubtedly stands out. Um, um, but also, you know, within the firm here at b and &E, I have a couple of sort of mentors and role models um, within our group. You know, Jim Loftus, who heads up our group, he's been an amazing supporter of mine and, and of women generally um, within, within the team. Um, and then I guess this is going to sound kind of cheesy, but... <laughs> My dad is a huge role model and mentor for me. Um, he um, he was always working when I was a kid. He was extremely driven and career focused. He's not a lawyer. Um, he was in business and he was just traveling here, there and everywhere. And it was my, my mom looked after us. Um, but he would always come home. He always had time for us. He always had a smile on his face. And I now look back and I think the stresses and the pressures that he must have been dealing with um and he never brought any of that home and i think he really instilled in me a, a drive to succeed and a work ethic that um i'm i'm very very grateful for 
well, look, I don't think that's cheesy at all. I think that's a very fine uh, guiding force or, or role model. So th those are great. And um, and we'll tag the, you know, George and Jim, if they're on the LinkedIn's, uh, we'll, we'll tag them in the show notes. Um, what are you reading right now? What's on your bookshelf? Well, <laughs> this kind of sums up my life. <laughs> I am currently reading two books. Uh, well, one of them I'm rereading. So um, that's called The Men Who Stole Africa. Mm. Um, and it's the story about um, the sort of the prominent dictators that um, came out of the colonialism that was rife in Africa. Um, and I'm reading that as, as a matter of personal interest, just because a lot of my work involves Africa, oil and gas, mining, metals. Um, and so I just, I'm fascinated by the sort of history and the politics. Um, so I definitely recommend that um, to anyone who, who has an interest in history in Africa. Um, that's a great book. Um, and that's why I'm rereading it. <laughs> um, and I'm also reading uh, another book, which kind of speaks to the other aspect of my life called The Whole Brain Child. So um, that's more of a kind of uh, child developmental book. I have a son who is three, who's proving somewhat challenging <laughs> at the moment. So like any good lawyer, I'm like, right, what, what can I research and what can I read to help me deal with the situation? <laughs> Sure. So, um, so yeah, that's a great book about child child development and behavior, and um, yeah, really, I'm I'm reading that to arm myself with a tool for day to day life with a three year old. <laughs> yes, and I think you need to be fully equipped, you know, uh, from the terrible twos forward. Just you know, always staying stocked up. That's good. The whole brain child. Okay. Um, along that same vein, um, what kind of music are you into? Any favorite artists? Any favorite genres? Um. So I'm a huge Beyonce fan. I was lucky enough to see her a couple of weeks ago in London. Okay, um, same, same. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I'm pretty mainstream when it comes to music, and my my music likes are quite uh, they're quite a mix. I think it's part of having grown up in France and then moved to London when I was 18. So um, I will listen to anything from Green Day and Offspring to French hip hop, like I am. Um, to old school hip hop like um, Souls of Mischief. Um, I love UK Garage, so um, I don't know if you're familiar with UK Garage, but that's probably kind of what makes me want to get up and dance um, the most. <laughs> and um, and yeah, and then but equally, I like all the kind of mainstream artists today. I was lucky enough uh, about three weeks ago, so I saw Beyonce, and then the following week, it sounds like I'm a party animal. This is like all the partying I've done in three years. But I was um, in Ibiza with my husband and some friends for a child-free weekend, and we saw um, Calvin Harris and David Guetta. That was really cool as well. Yeah. Okay. No. Um, so last year was probably the singular greatest year I will have for concert going, and and saw um, we saw Lizzo, we saw um, Alicia Keys in Paris. Um, and we saw, we saw someone else, uh, and so much good music. It's kind of, it's kind of hard to keep track, but those are the, the two highlights that, you know, um, some people in Paris. I mean, that was, uh, I love, I love her so much. Um, yeah. you know, a friend of mine was saying, uh, a colleague here, actually, she was, uh, so she loves her music and she was telling me the other day that, uh, one of the tricks she uses if, if, you know, it's a Beyonce or another sellout artist is rather than try and get tickets in London, she'll go to the, the other cities, like the lesser mm -hmm. known cities. So she'll travel to Dublin or to Brussels or something to go and see someone because she'll get better tickets more easily than she will in London. So I was like, oh, only well, someone without, I was just say, only someone without small children at home could do that. But <laughs> <laughs> no, that, that that's true. Um, that is exactly the, the tactic that we employed to see Beyonce uh, before she came to London, she was in Cardiff. And so we were able to see her in Cardiff um, and got some pretty good tickets there. Um, so absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Have you no, ever, I'm going cool. to ask you a question now. Have you ever been to Carnival in Notting Hill? No, I haven't. Should I have? Yeah, that's an experience. If you're, okay. if you're ever in London in August, I'll take you to Carnival. Okay, in August, yeah. Okay, well now, like, I feel like I've got to try and like make up, make it a plan to be in August. Um, typically, I'm in the beach in, um, in either Italy or Portugal uh, around that time. But hey, I'm open to it. Oh, what a hard life you do live! <laughs> ah, ah, 
True, true. You know, uh, you know, I, I'll survive somehow. Um, listen, this is a question I'm always fascinated to hear um, from folks from. Um, let's say you're approached by a current student, recent graduate, or, or someone that's looking to break into the field. Um, what advice would you give them to prepare them to make that jump or to make those efforts? Wow, that's a really good question um, and a tough one. Um, I, I guess it depends on the student or the graduate, but I think there's a tendency these days. I mean, the market is so much more competitive than it was when I was a student. And I look at our prospective vacation scheme students, trainees, graduates coming in, and I'm like, wow. I mean, they don't just have amazing grades. They have all these extracurriculars. They've won competitions. They speak five languages. It's just, I mean, I'm scared for my children and what that means about the pressure that's going to be heaped upon them in years to come. But it's, it's seriously impressive. And so, as I said before, I think, you know, sometimes I get asked, well, what do I do with my gap year? How do I upskill myself so that when I join you guys, I'm even better? And I'm like, whoa, <laughs> just relax. Go and do something else and enjoy it. Um, and so I think my advice probably would not be around, you know, um, kind of upskilling or focusing on on um, on getting as much experience as possible. I think preparing a student or a graduate for a career in arbitration, I mean, it involves stamina. There's no denying that there is a lot. You know, the hours are long and there is a lot of hard work. Um, and I think I think I would just make sure if I was asked for advice that they really understood that. Um, and, you know, I know there is quite rightly a huge drive to focus more on work life balance and mental health and well-being. Um, but I think you do also have to accept that the job is such that the nature of the job, it's so international, you're crossing time zones. Um, and it's a client service industry. And so, you know, you have to be prepared to put the hours in and but you also have to be prepared to take the time when you can take it. So I'm a great believer in, um, you know, doing what you can do when you can do it. So if I have a random Thursday where, you know, I have a window where I've got no calls, no meetings and remarkably no pressing issue I need to deal with, maybe I'll take those two hours and go do something for myself because who knows when I'll get them back. You know, I, I may be at my desk until 9 p.m. later, so make the most of it. And I think that's very much a culture we have in the disputes team here in in BNE in London. Actually, we don't we don't expect people to be at their desks for the sake of being at their desks. And if you have a, a family thing you want to you know take care of, you want to go and work out, go do yoga, go learn Spanish, and you want to do that in the middle of the day, provided it's not interfering with your your kind of client service responsibilities that's all fine. Um, and so I think being realistic, I guess, is what I, I would advise. And I know that's not the most uplifting of messages, but I do think you have to prepare yourself for what, what, this, what this involves. And, you know, as part of my conversation with junior um, practitioners, and in particular women, because I tend to have this conversation with women more than men, although that is changing, um, I, I do kind of caution them that it's not easy. You know, having a baby, having a young child and doing this job is not easy. And I think the more open we are in talking about how hard it is, the more people will feel that they can come and talk to us when they're struggling. Um, and so I just I'm, I'm a huge believer in, in openness and having the conversation. I, I think that's uh, beautifully and well said. Um, you know, work life balance is hugely important, um, you know, for longevity and for just taking care and valuing the people. Um, you know, the work will always be there, uh, but you have to take care of yourself too. At the same time, I think you make a great point that it's about, I think it's really the, the, the question that comes is managing the client expectations. Um, for me as a client, if I email someone something, you know, unless I use the, the, in the folks that have worked with me will know, if it's really, really urgent, I'll put time sensitive in the subject line. Um, Short of that, you know, I don't I don't expect you to leave your kid's birthday party or to respond to me on a Saturday afternoon, um, you know, and I try and get folks a sort of time indicators of, as to when things are needed, because I don't want people developing bad habits. And I think maybe that's something that lawyers should feel comfortable asking at the beginning of an engagement, saying, you know, what is your communication rhythm like? You know, 
what's what's the urgency here just so that everyone is on the same page and even if it's a little bit awkward to ask that right at the beginning um it will make everyone happier because you're not thinking oh man i just got this on at four o'clock on a friday do i really need to work 10 hours now to get it done or can i do it tuesday yeah that that's such great advice and i try and be i mean i'm guilty of it myself you know you you send an email to an associate or or someone else in your team and you ask them to do something and you know in your head there's no expectation that they drop whatever they're doing and they do it immediately but if you think about it from their perspective they may think well a partner's asked me to do something i need to just do it you know i don't need to be chased in two hours um and so they might drop what they're doing and and do it and um and so i i've been trying to be more thoughtful about saying you know this can wait till monday or you do not need to do this right now it can wait till after your meeting or you know your kids nativity play or whatever it is you're doing um it's not it's not an immediate action item so yeah i think that's great advice putting time sensitive in the subject line i really like that <laughs> yeah yeah but but it, that is one of those things that because i don't ask for it frequently if i put something in time sensitive i do really actually need it like asap <laughs> but that, that's fine everyone know, knows where they stand then <laughs> yeah 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 um well, look, this is something you kind of referenced a moment ago, and this is one of our last questions here. Um, let's say it is a five o'clock on a Friday and you have you're completely free for the weekend, no obligations. Um, that magic wand is back. You can wave it, do whatever you'd like for the weekend. How would you spend that time? What would you do? Wow. Um, well, if it was as impromptu as that and I didn't have time to plan a repeat trip to Ibiza, <laughs> um, I would probably, as boring as it sounds, I would probably have a quiet Friday night, glass of wine relax there's something uh amazing about being in your own home without your children there i never <laughs> understood that i never understood that before i was like well if you you know if the children are away or you know the, the in-laws have the children why are you not out partying well sometimes it's nice to just be in your own space without people making demands of you <laughs> yes. so i would probably have a quiet friday evening and then I think my ideal weekend really is things like brunching. I love to brunch. Mm -hmm. um, so brunching, shopping, I might go um, to the movies. I love I love the cinema, so I might do that um, because I, I don't do it anywhere near as much as I'd like because when I have a few spare hours, I, I prefer to catch up with friends than spend them sitting in a dark room. But if I had a whole weekend, I would definitely go to the cinema. Um, and just really socializing and hanging out with people um, and, and feeling carefree. Uh, maybe a spa day. I do like a spa day as well. Um, but yeah, pretty simple, really. Yeah, that sounds like a, a fantastic weekend. Movies, brunching, uh, just quiet time. That, that's a good time. Now, look, I'm going to give uh, you a tip if you haven't been there already um, and for listeners at home, too. Um, there's a great little restaurant um, in Soho called Dirty Bones. When I was there in London most recently, I got the chicken and waffles for brunch. Listen, okay. I, no further information. <laughs> Fantastic. I, they're not the sponsor. Wow. It's an advertisement, but it was that good that is worth mentioning. <laughs> well, that that's quite the endorsement coming from from you. I mean, chicken and waffles, right? That's from your neck of the woods. <laughs> that's right. That is a southern tradition, and I was skeptical when I saw that this was featured in a London place, and I was looking for places to eat, and uh, absolutely worth checking out. It's a great little spot. Okay, um, I will def definitely do that. And look, this is, um, you know, we're coming to the final question now of our, our time together. Do you have any shout outs, any uh, names you want to throw out there, uh, folks listening at home that uh, we should uh, tag when we get ready to post this? How much time do we have? No, I'm kidding. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I would definitely shout out Lizzie Chan. I don't know sure. if you know Lizzie, but she is a wonderful, wonderful human being. She exudes positivity at all hours of the day and night. Uh, she's a fantastic um, advocate for diversity. She is a huge, um, huge uh, contributor to arbitral women and just generally to profile raising for, for diverse practitioners in arbitration. So I would absolutely shout her out. She's also my right hand woman when it comes to all things AI technology related um, in, in arbitral women sort of spheres. Um, so definitely a Lizzie, she's amazing. Um, and I would also shout out Rebecca Mascara, who's um, based in New York, 
again, another fantastic human being, a great lawyer, um, great working with her. She is tireless. Um, and she's also a, a fantastic mother and just an all round amazing person. So yeah, definitely shout her out as well. Very well. Good. Well, yes, both, uh, you know, Lizzie's been on the show before and Rebecca hasn't, but we know Rebecca well, um, good friends of the show. So we'll definitely uh, tag them when we post, uh, this. And uh, well, I guess you already mentioned her earlier, but, um, you know, former guests, uh, Merez and Dana, you're getting a double tag here. Uh, shout outs from my end. Um, Okay, well, look, uh, Luis, uh, unfortunately, the time has just skipped right on by. We're at the end of our, our time together. Thank you so much for coming by the show. It's been a great time. Thank you for having me. It's been, a, it's been an honor and a pleasure and a great way to spend the Thursday morning. Fan yes, agreed. Agreed. We'll have to have you back another time and definitely we'll have to catch up next time um, I, I am in London. Uh, do you want to sign us off? Sure, I would be happy to. I am Luis Woods, and there is no disputing it. You are listening to Tales of the Tribunal. Thank you, and we will see y'all next time. So, listener, there you have it. As I said, a fun conversation with Luis. It was really great to hear her perspective, breath of fresh air in the digital studio, and we look forward to having her back around sometime soon. Um, I hope you got a lot of, out of that conversation. I know I certainly enjoyed it. And um, we've been working for a while to bring that to you. So as I've said, we've got another five or six episodes. We need to confirm just a couple more details on it, whether it's five or six, to bring you to wrap up the rest of this season. And um, look, season five has had a lot of great guests so far and a, little, a lot of interesting topics. So one more thing to talk to you about um, as we get ready to head into the end of this episode, and that is, in case you missed it, well, look, we'll send some more of the content from things that they talked about this week, but on the other side of the world from Hong Kong was Camp CCBC's annual international arbitration event in Brazil. They had a ton of great speakers from across the Lusophone-speaking world and, of course, South and Central America. Um, we, this is the second year that we've partnered with them. We've been glad to share their content, both as you would have heard on Disputes Digest earlier in the year, and, of course, we're talking about it now. Um, if you haven't seen it, go check out the website. You'll see some of the great events that they had. And it was great to partner with them once again. And we look forward to hopefully covering them sometime in person. So keep your eyes and ears peeled for that. So final thing that I would say, as we say every week, thank you so much for listening to the show. If you're enjoying the show, give it a like or review on your podcasting platform of choice. It takes just a couple of seconds. Leave us a five-star review. If you feel it in your heart, leave us a great review telling people how much you enjoy the show. It's one of the greatest ways to help others find the show. Or if you're feeling really energetic, really generous, go tell a friend or colleague, send it to them and help them discover the show as well. We are just a breath away from 30,000 downloads. That was our goal at the beginning of the season to reach there. And um, well, we are just a few downloads away. We'll keep the counter going as we head towards the end of the season. And um, I think that's it. Tales of the Tribunal is brought to you by MoBeta Solutions. All right, that's it for Tales of the Tribunal this week. Thank you so much for tuning in. We'll see you back with more coverage and another interview next week and maybe a Disputes Digest in there as well. So thanks so much for tuning in, and we'll see you next time on Tales of the Tribunal. None of the views shared on today or any episode of Tales of the Tribunal is presented as a legal advice nor advice of any kind. No compensation was provided to any person or party for their appearance on the show, nor do any of the statements made represent any particular organization, legal position, or viewpoint. All interviewees appear on an arm's length basis, and their appearances should not be construed as any bias or preferred affiliation with the host or host's employer. All rights reserved. <laughs>